uh, there do come certain times uh, in the life of a nation, in the life of particularly our state here, in the life of Christian people, where we do need to address certain issues and make it clear, not just what we're against. Oftentimes, Christians are castigated as being those who only say what they're against and not what they're for. But in this case, it's certainly a, a both and. Um, there is a firm uh, position that we do need to hold, but there also are underlying things that we need to cover. So for that reason, I say again, this is not the normal Ira Baptist Church sermon. And another reason it's uncomfortable for me is uh, I very much uh, typically like to, and most of us here like to stick with a passage of scripture. We've been in Matthew now for over a year and a half, so that probably tells you uh, something about that. So this is a little bit different in regards of that, as we won't be uh, just in one passage of scripture today. Um, in fact, get, if you have a Bible with you, get your fingers ready, because we'll be turning around a lot. So you'll get a workout uh, this morning. Uh, that being said, I do want to address uh, this issue of, of the issue of abortion, uh, particularly concerning Vermont's Proposal 5 and Article 22. And then I want to spend quite a bit of time talking about the underlying realities. What makes these things such an issue? Of course, oftentimes when we speak about the issues of life, we read from Psalm 139. And I want to just start there before we begin. Psalm 139. Beginning in verse 13, David confesses to the Lord, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, I am still with you. We'll stop there, and now let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help as we consider these things this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would certainly help us, that you would uh, give us clarity on these kinds of things. Uh, this is undoubtedly one of the most tumultuous and and sharpest disagreements within our culture, especially within our state, even even amongst friends and loved ones, Lord, um, the issues regarding the upcoming vote here are, are very divisive. And Lord, we want to be gracious, but we also want to be clear uh, about what your word says. So help us to, to look at this with an eye of, of compassion, an eye of truth and to the truth, and also with a mind that is fixed on you. Lord, would you be our point of reference in this discussion? Rather, Lord, would you be our point of reference in all things? For apart from that, we certainly go astray. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our merciful Savior. Amen.
Well, if you have an outline on the back of your bulletin, you'll notice that we'll look at this really in three different ways. And we'll start um, with the issue of abortion. And going back two years, three years to 2019, you might remember, uh, you probably do remember if you are a resident of Vermont, that the state enacted um, what's known as an independent statutory protection, um, sort of a carte blanche protection for abortion throughout all the terms of pregnancy. That was in 2019. And uh, this is what that states. Uh, the state of Vermont recognizes the fundamental right of every individual who becomes pregnant to choose to carry a pregnancy to term, to give birth to a child, or to have an abortion. A public entity shall not, in the regulation or provision of benefits, facilities, services, or information, deny or interfere with an individual's fundamental rights to choose or refuse contraception or sterilization, or to choose to carry a pregnancy to term, to give birth to a child, or to obtain an abortion. No state or local law enforcement shall prosecute any individual for inducing, performing, or attempting to induce or perform the individual's abortion. Now, amongst the legal language, what that essentially means is that currently in the state of Vermont, it is legal to obtain an abortion for about any reason throughout all terms of pregnancy. And on the contrary, it's illegal for any public entity to interfere with um, what, is, what is noted as an individual's fundamental rights. And notice that within those fundamental rights, it would consider uh, the right to an abortion as a fundamental right. Now, the, the upcoming Proposal 5, which has been on the radar now for well over a year, uh, known as Pro Proposal 5 or Proposed Vermont Constitution Amendment Article 22, um, you've probably already seen it. Of course, you've seen all the signs, either one way or the other, to vote yes or to vote no. If you opened your mail-in ballot, if you're like me, you might have not opened your mail-in ballot, but if you opened it, you saw that on the ballot. Um, that vote has much to do with enshrining, uh, that's the language that is being used, enshrining the fundamental right to abortion at all terms of pregnancy in the Vermont Constitution. Um, now the fact is, and you're probably aware that the article is not limited or even primarily focused on the basic issue of abortion. It actually covers a whole gamut of possibilities and we'll look at some of those things. But before that, I wanna take a few minutes, and this is not gonna be an enjoyable task for me, but just to cover uh, what abortion is, what are some of the common arguments for it, and then of course, what would be some of the arguments against it. Now there's no way to address every argument here. We would be here for a long time. Um, of course, an abortion is defined as a procedure to terminate or end a pregnancy, either using medical or surgical procedures to do so. And uh, the obvious and implied goal is to prevent the, the carrying to term or the birth of a child for any number of reasons. Now, even in saying that, there are a lot of nuances and there are a lot of, well, yes, but statements that could be added in. And again, we can't cover all of those. Um, but I want to give a little bit of a survey because we should be aware 
of what those who are proponents of, of legalized and constitutionalized abortion, what they believe, what their best arguments for. It's, it's never uh, right to take somebody and, and paint a false picture of what they think and then to knock that picture down. We should always interact with, with the most serious of arguments. So I want to highlight a few. And asterisk here, when I'm speaking these arguments, I'm not taking them for myself, or certainly not for this church. I'm simply underlining what they are. One, maybe the most common argument for abortion is that women should have a moral right to decide what to do with their bodies. Um, now, I understand immediately that the counter arguments to that come into your mind, um, but we'll leave those for a few minutes to get an idea of what's here. Um, the assumption is that a, a pregnancy significantly, even dynamically, affects, alters a woman's body, and that abortion, like any other preventative or remedial procedure, should be allowed to ensure the continuation of a normal lifestyle, like a pre-pregnancy lifestyle. And uh, the argument commonly includes references to, of course, the physical difficulties and changes that a woman undergoes during pregnancy and resulting with a birth. And if that pregnancy was unplanned or unwanted, there should be no reason, it's said, that a woman should be forced uh, to endure those changes or difficulties for the sake of preserving the pregnancy. So that's one. Women should have a moral right to decide what to do with their bodies. Um, another one, very common, even more in the last few years, the right to abortion is critical for gender equality. Uh, this argument underlines that there is a difference between men and women. One major instance of that is that women are biologically given the ability and made in such a way as to be able to carry a baby to term in pregnancy. Men, on the other hand, are said to have such a minimal role in this, um, except for the initial encounter, that women are disproportionately affected by pregnancy. And, uh, of course, common references to this are to that of the workplace, when a woman who gives birth would be required to miss months or even years of work for the birth and the care of a baby, uh, forcing a woman to carry that baby to term removes the equality of opportunity in the workforce. Uh, another argument along these same lines is that some men that we would call deadbeat dads um, contribute nothing except that initial experience to the conception of a child, and then they're able to run sort of scot-free. And uh, they often are able to avoid things like child support. They're, of course, avoiding the actual act of fathering or being a part of the child's life. For a woman to do this, they say, would be considered abandonment. So abortion should be allowed to give them that same sort of freedom to opt out of a, an unintended or unwanted pregnancy. So that's another one. The right to abortion is critical for gender equality. Uh, a third argument that is stated is that banning abortion places women at risk by forcing them to use illegal or unsafe practices for abortion. And uh, the argument goes that for years, abortions have been sought through non-professional medical means, um, often termed as coat hanger abortions. And uh, this places women at an incredibly high risk for medical complications, which is true. And uh, the belief that certain women, for various reasons, uh, must seek an abortion. And if it's illegal, that that means they must seek it 
uh, in one of these medically unsafe ways. Um, now, these, those three arguments, the moral right to decide what to do with their bodies, the right to uh, gender equality and uh, banning abortion, which places uh, women in an unsafe condition, those three are, are really common or regular reasons to support abortion. They have, they have more to do with what we would call choice or freedom or personal autonomy. Uh, rather than any sense of real urgency or, or medical need. There are a couple more arguments that are, I would say, more compelling emotionally, uh, which are commonly given. Those two would be, one, uh, the instance of a pregnancy that is produced in an illicit way, um, through assault, something like that. Um, the idea that if a child is conceived in this scandalous way, then a woman should not be forced to carry the child to term, to raise the child, and to always have to consider in her mind the, the nature of the events that led up to that pregnancy. Um, now, this argument is very emotionally compelling. Um, for that reason, it's often seen as sort of a, a gotcha or a, a final straw argument because it's an argument of undoubtedly serious experience. And let us state without reservation that any woman who has been a victim of rape or sexual assault is a woman who has undergone an unimaginably horrible event. There is no question. It's a woman who deserves the utmost care, the utmost reasonableness. And it's a, a person, a woman, who has experienced a trauma that the vast majority of people simply cannot relate to which is why that argument is so emotionally compelling. And then finally would be that abortion is necessary for medical reasons. Um, this would be the final category and uh, also would be more persuasive, I would say, um, emotionally and, and can be compelling medically. And uh, these reasons might be something like uh, what's known as a tubal or ectopic pregnancy. Um, where the fertilized egg implants not in the uterus, but on its way to the uterus. And of course, this produces a, a pregnancy that's simply not viable and it can be incredibly dangerous to the mother's health, um, even, even leading to death if it's not treated immediately. So that would be one reason. Another medical reason that's given is, is early detectable fetal issues. You all probably know people, my own sister, uh, went through a situation where early on in a pregnancy, they detected some issues with the, the baby that they said, told her it probably would not be viable um, or would not have a long life. And uh, of course, that's made possible by modern scientific imaging and uh, biologic testing. And that can reveal those things earlier on than we've ever been able to know before. And uh, the argument is that it's a merciful thing to not allow the child to be born in that case. And then another would simply be pregnancy at an early age, um, what we might consider a very early age. Now, having given these things, um, I have to make the obvious concession that I've by no means given all or even the most, even most of the arguments for or in favor of legalized abortion. 
but I hope we get some sense of where these people are coming from. I shouldn't say these people, where certain individuals are coming from. Now, it should be noted, though, that those last couple categories of arguments are arguments from true scenarios. And for instance, some children are produced through rape. And, and oftentimes, sometimes there are things like tubal pregnancies or, or fetal issues. Those are real scenarios. But there are also arguments from not just relative, but really extreme rarity when it comes to arguing for legalized abortion in any case. For instance, um, in 2019, thinking of the, in terms of a, a pregnancy at an early age, while 57% of abortions were for women between the ages of 20 and 29, only 0.2 or one-fifth of a percent were for those considered extremely young, under the age of 15. Um, in another survey, uh, less than half of a percent were given for the reason of rape. Uh, less than 3% were for fetal health reasons. Um, Florida, the state of Florida is unique in that it requires a reason to be given for every abortion. And there, uh, 0.15 or about an eighth of a percent were for rape. 0.2, one fifth of a percent were in cases where the, the mother's life was endangered. And 0.9 or less than 1% were for serious abnormalities with the infant. So it stands that the most persuasive and probably the, some of the most common arguments you see for legalizing and in this case enshrining abortion um, actually only account for extremely rare cases. And that's not to mention the fact that, for instance, the, the removal or the attempted implanting of something like an ectopic pregnancy is not remotely similar to the removal of a pregnancy for any other reason. In almost any case where there are physical reasons for a mother to abort, measures are taken to preserve both the life of mom and the baby. And in that case, if the life of a baby is lost, that is a far cry, both medically and I would say morally, from simply automatically aborting the baby when a difficulty arises. In these cases, when the baby does die, the removal of a, a miscarried or a non-viable child would be no morally different than the common procedures for any other miscarriage, which those, of, those women of you which have experienced that know that that's an incredibly emotionally difficult and trying thing. In these cases, the women are not seeking to end their pregnancy. They were seeking a healthy baby and ended up in this difficult circumstance. And I say that to make this point. It's, it's, it's logically dishonest and really morally wrong to lump those kinds of cases into arguing for abortion carte blanche. Not only is it not the same thing, it's not even in the same category. So those would be some common arguments for abortion. Let me move along quickly here. 
and uh, give what we would see as common or more persuasive arguments against it. And the number one, and we could spend a whole sermon on just this, but the number one argument against abortion at any time and uh, through all terms of pregnancy for any reason is that it is the willful taking of a human life. This is the assumption that is ignored, even argued against, in most of the convenience cases of abortion. If you simply regard a fetus, medical term, real medical term, as a clump of cells, which is an inaccurate term, or as, as a medical inconvenience, then there's no reason to consider it um, a significant issue to, to be rid of that. However, if you consider it as human life, then it's incredibly morally significant and as significant and equal in severity to the taking of a life of a child who's walking around outside the womb. Now, often people will concede that a fetus is just a potential life, not an actual human life yet. And that will give them a break to avoid this argument. Now, I would not make that concession that it's just a potential life. But even if that concession were made, it is still woefully far from any other medical procedure that removes, say, an unwanted growth, like a wart or a tumor. The removal of those things is not the removal of a potential human life. And of course, I repeat, I would not make that concession. I would say it is an actual human life. Uh, number two, this one probably came to your mind if you consider yourself pro-choice, is that abortion is not fundamentally a choice about a woman's body. And this would be a, in response to the argument that women should be free to do what they wish with their own body. And uh, of course, it goes almost without stating that the baby in the womb, while certainly dependent on the mother, is decidedly not a part of the woman's body, but it has its own, and I would say its own very recognizable body from a very early state. Another uh, argument against abortion, that legalized abortion for any cause would engender a culture where pregnancy and therefore life is sort of disposable. And I think that we've seen some of that. Um, the conversations that are had on media, social media, and the public sphere today uh, speak about abortion as if it's a given granted thing, as if it's not a big deal at all, as if it's just a normal part of life. That would not have been the same way it would have been considered, even though abortion has existed for essentially all of human history, would not have been so commonplace and mundane. Another argument, this is not so much an argument against abortion as it is getting to more of the issues, would be that increased measures for things like adoption, things like training of young men to be faithful to the mother of their child, uh, those would reduce a lion's share, not all, a lion's share of the reasons for abortion. Now, again, there are more arguments against abortion as well. Those are what I would consider to be the more compelling. 
Now, I understand that was difficult, not fascinating or even enjoyable to listen to, but I think it was necessary. And with that being said, I want to do a, a scriptural survey of life. I'm going to kind of breeze, not breeze through, but I'm going to go through some scriptures quickly. If you want to jot them down, uh, feel free to do that. And this is not an exhaustive list. Um, Genesis 1:27, of course, in the creation account, tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we would concede without any stretch that babies in the womb are human beings created in God's image and therefore bear the same value and dignity that you and I do. In Job 33, verse 4, the concession, the, the statement is made that the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Humans, even through the normal means of conception and childbirth, are designed by God and given life by God himself. There is no biologically accidental baby, whether in the uterus or walking or sleeping and breathing among us. Psalm 119, verse 73. David writes, Your hands have made me and fashioned me. David considered himself, though not the original creation, Adam and Eve, to still be made and formed by the hand of God himself. We've already read from Psalm 139, but you can jot down verses 13 through 17, and uh, won't read it again right now, but simply to note that the intricate detail of the creation of a person, the design of the mother's womb, and the process of forming and growth and birth are part of the wonderful works of God. God is intimately aware of persons, even in their forming stage. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Sorry, that's misquoted. That's, That's from Psalm 139. But, uh, Let me read the correct scripture, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children, here we go, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There is the biblical statement that children are a gift and a blessing from the Lord. And while any parent 
would concede that there are major changes and in inconveniences in raising children. Still, apart from those difficulties, we must say with the Lord that his children are a gift. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Uh, This, of course, is a specific case, but the idea is that God considers and deals with, with people and considers them as individuals in his sovereignty and in his providence even before they are born. Actually, even before they're formed, he views them and knows them in his intimate wisdom. Uh, Last one for now, Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. This accord, of course, is part of the giving of God's moral law and uh, specifically laws concerning the ruling of his people. And this is a case, a case scenario. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband will impose on him and pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, that, that is, if there is harm to the children, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So that child who is harmed and caused to be born before term is considered a person whose life is taken just like any other person. That's in God's own consideration. Okay, so all that leads us to move on then, because uh, the current issue is Vermont, of course, Proposal 5, Article 22. And you've probably read it, but I'll read it here just to freshen our minds. It states that an individual's right to personal reproductive autonomy is central to the liberty and dignity to determine one's own life course and shall not be denied or infringed unless justified by a compelling state interest achieved by the least restrictive means. Uh, Again, what this entails is, as it's been stated, it's a bill that means to enshrine abortion rights in the Vermont Constitution, specifically uh, abortion at any term of pregnancy. Um, Now, Governor Scott has vowed not to veto this proposal if it is passed, and it really has become a litmus test politically as to whether you are, quote-unquote, with the times or, quote-unquote, on the right side of history. Uh, A lot of hatred is spread, especially if you have friends on Facebook who disagree with you on this, over even thinking about voting no on this article. The idea of personal reproductive autonomy, which certainly includes abortion and would enshrine the already in place provision for Late term, partial birth, full term, whatever you want to call it, abortion. First of all, the article, interestingly, doesn't mention abortion by name, 
nor does it even mention women. Um, that's certainly an element of our times. And the language of the article is purposefully vague. And it leaves room for a lot of things. For instance, the idea of personal reproductive autonomy must by nature include things like the decision of individuals to sterilize themselves or to, to make reproductive decisions like, like a biological sex change or castration or anything like this. And one major issue within this would be a case where an underage young woman might make a decision about this, gender alteration, something like that, by way of hormones, and her parents would be excluded from that because it's a, a fundamental right, as it's stated. The liberty, as it reads, the liberty and dignity determines one owns life course. That's a kind of a broad and vague statement also. Where does one person's life determination run into another person's life determination? For instance, what if a, what if a father, a biological father, makes the determination that he's going to be a father. Seems silly when you look at it that way, because obviously I can't just choose to be a father. Or what if in the case of a relationship, a, a woman is pregnant and elects for an abortion, but the father elects to be the father of that child and to raise that child? Well, whose personal autonomy is secured in that case? And what about the obvious? Of course, we would state in all cases of abortion, and especially in those the undeniable cases of full term or partial birth abortion, that the baby that is having its life ended, where is his fundamental right to determine the course of his life? It's fundamentally denied. So logically, this article is, is self-defeating. It doesn't make any sense. It's so broadly written and vague that it can't really mean anything, but it could be interpreted to mean many things. It touches on many issues. It touches on gender and sexual identity. It touches on the concept of, of, of free sexual activity without fear of repercussion. It touches on the autonomy of children and teenagers from their parents. It touches on the autonomy of a spouse from their husband or wife. And it also has this very frightening insertion where the only exception is a compelling state interest, which is an open-ended and undefined nightmare, to be honest, which is, I would say, like the rest of this proposal. That's what this entails. Of course, it entails more. We could go on, but there are also assumptions that this article makes. It assumes, it assumes that abortion is somehow a, a natural or fundamental right. It also assumes that, that personal reproductive autonomy is an actual thing to be dealt with and considered with the kind of weight to make a constitutional amendment. It also assumes that one can actually determine the course of their life. And finally, it assumes that the opinions 
and the interest of an individual is of ultimate significance, only being trumped in this case by whatever a compelling state interest might be. We could go on, but this is a little bit of what's at stake and uh, what sort of lies behind this article, this vote upcoming. And I want to move quickly to what I would consider and what many would consider to be the underlying realities. In other words, when you consider something like abortion, something like gender identity, something like sexual orientation or, or life or marriage or any of these things that, that honestly this bill touches on, there's a key underlying reality that makes all these things relevant. In other words, you simply could ask the question, where do these ideas come from? And the, what I would say, and not alone in saying this, is that the, the fundamental underlying assumption and problem is that humans have convinced themselves that their own individuality, their own personality, and their own happiness is the most important determining factor in making these major decisions. It comes down to the problem of self. Now, I don't want to state this as simply as saying anybody who disagrees with me is selfish. That would be, that would be not a legitimate way to state it. So what do I mean by the problem of self? How do, how do seemingly common and even granted assumptions about life and community go from where they were, say, during the time of World War II, to where they are now? Things like the definition of marriage, things like the abortion issue, the, the whole gamut of what is now the sexual and gender identity phenomenon. How do we go from having a common communal understanding of what these things mean to where now children in schools are given provisions to change their clothes in school, to alter their identity without their parents knowing that? How do those things change? Now, commonly, we would define these things as issues that go back to sin and the sin nature, and I, I agree with that. But whereas sin has always existed, this particular category of sin has certainly snowballed recently within the last hundred years in our culture. And we are existing in a world that was unimaginable to my great-grandparents, your grandparents. The problem, it seems, is with our over-realized value of self. In short, why do people see abortion for any reason as such a critical need in society? It comes down to the point where, where our personal interest is exalted above the good of another. Why are these moral and cultural norms being torn down and even being viewed as archaic and oppressive? You, you see the, the slogans, our rights are on the table at this vote. How do we get to the place where we consider the right to take the life of a child in the womb at any stage a fundamental right? I think we can consider that it's 
because self is exalted in such a way, our self, our personal interest and happiness is exalted in such a way as to make one's desire and fulfillment the chief end of existence. Now, undoubtedly, on the part of men, this has been taking place in rampant ways for years. When a man biologically fathers a child and abandons that mother and child, that is reprehensible. No question asked. That is one of the most selfish and self-serving decisions that could ever be made. And nobody would disagree with that. So why are cultural norms being changed to such a degree that the life of a child can simply be removed for any reason? This has been described by some as as expressive individualism. That is, each person has a set core of feelings and intuitions that must be realized uh, in order to achieve fulfillment. You might hear it often on social media or from a family member when a person comes out as having made a major decision or they come out as a as a, having changed their sexual orientation or, or they identify as this or that. The encouragement comes from those who support them to just be yourself, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself. This is not something, at least the heightened sense of this, has not always existed as a major part of society. Consider that in societies and times where survival is hinged on every person playing a part, doing their expected tasks, fulfilling their intended roles, where survival is hinged on on having children to preserve your family, there's no room for this kind of argument where, well, it would just make me happier, or it's going to be difficult if, or, or, or I would be most fulfilled if. There's not a lot of room, for instance, to ponder whether you as a, a young boy might actually rather identify as a girl or as a non-binary person when your task for the day is to find food or starve. And in a similar way, the issues of abortion and reproductive liberty are not necessarily a major headline in the newspaper when half of babies born die in infancy or many mothers die in childbearing, as took place throughout much of history. What I'm getting at is that the relative comfort and ease of our society has led to these considerations which can only come when we're allowed to run wild with our imaginations. And the problem with running wild with our imaginations is that naturally, apart from redemption, our imaginations do not lend themselves to righteousness. So the rise of self, the the importance of self, the imagination and the sense of fulfillment only in, in, in being true to who we are, It leads to all sorts of societal chaos. And from a Christian worldview, two major things come into focus. Two things which are rejected, of course, in common society. 
Those two things are the created order, just the fact that God has created the world and humans with design, not only in the way we're made up, but also in our function. And second, the created purpose, that human beings were created ultimately not to seek our own pleasure at any cost, but rather to fulfill our divine purpose. So the created order and the created purpose. God has created the world to exist and flourish in the way that he has designed it. This is true of, of human sexuality, of marriage and family, of reproduction and childbirth, and of all manner of, of smaller interpersonal relationship behaviors. We already read this scripture, but in Genesis 1, 27, we read that God created man and woman in his own image. And then he's, he goes on to tell them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers of God and be his agents of work and glory in the earth. When we think of created order, much of scripture is given to the way that, that God created humans to function in in the marriage and family relationships. I can't go into great detail on that now, but some basic tenets are helpful. The created order encourages a godly, Christ-centered existence for all involved. For instance, First uh, Corinthians chapter number 11, verse 3. This is a general principle that Paul gives. He said, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The head of every man is Christ, and as the head of a household, as God designed and ordained it to be, this, this relationship functions only when the headship of Christ is honored and played out in all of that home and life. In other words, in the institution of marriage, the way God has designed it, it works beautifully and well when it is Christ-centered and Christ-honoring. This includes things like provision. Uh, for instance, 1 Timothy 5.8 gives the admonition that if, if, if anyone doesn't provide for his own, especially of those of his own household, he is worse than an infidel, an unbeliever. In other words, in the function of God's design, a, a, a man is made to provide for his family, not to desert them. This includes things, of course, like love. Ephesians 5.25, Paul gives the admonition that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church in a sacrificial way, not a self-serving or self-seeking way. The parallel to that in Ephesians 5.33 tells us that each man should love his wife and that each wife should respect her husband. There's respect and mutual love and honor in a relationship that seeks Christ. Philippians 2.3 tells us to consider what Christ has done, but to consider others more important than ourselves. It's an outward look. 
to others and to Christ. And of course, a Christ-honoring home would include the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, if every relationship, especially every relationship between man and woman, followed this created order of fidelity, of commitment, of love, of, of considering the other more important than ourself, of patience and kindness, consider all of those pregnancies that would no longer be tragic, but rather they would be part of a God-designed function of a flourishing home. God's design, of course, is he created Adam and Eve and he placed them together and he said, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold to his wife and they'll be one flesh. That, that expression of marriage, one man, one woman for life, that precludes many cases of abandonment. It precludes many cases of especially fathers who have children with, with multiple mothers and aren't involved with any of them. It precludes many cases of, of fatherless homes. Of course, not in the case of when a father dies, but the majority of fatherless homes are simply homes where the dad is, is left. It precludes the idea at all of, of unwanted pregnancy because while there is certainly pain and suffering included in childbearing as part of the curse, it's still the normal expected part of the created order for a man and a woman to join together and to have children for the propagation of God's glory. One of the evidences of the rise of selfishness or selfism, I would say, in society is the common view that childbearing and parenthood is, is some kind of second-level burden. It's some kind of sacrificial endeavor. It's some kind of thing that you attain to. It's, it's, it's an experience that is, is lesser because you have less freedom. It's an inconvenience and an interruption of life. No, no. God has designed human beings to flourish in the propagation of children who are a gift from him, a treasure and a heritage. And while they can be insufferable brats at times, they are wonderfully made in his image. And I want to be sensitive when I say this because there are many cases in which women and families would love to have children and they cannot. And that is that is a heartbreaking thing. But consider that in the created order, it's the interruption or the unexpected trial of life when a woman doesn't bear children through marriage. It's not the surprise when, oh, you guys are you're having another child? Wow, can't believe that. But seemingly, that's where our culture is turned. Yes, neglect of the created order in, in relationships, in family, in society, and giving way for the triumph of, of 
of expressive individualism as the ultimate of importance has led to the host of issues that we face today, including, including the vast majority of the cases of abortion. Unfaithfulness, selfishness, unwilling to accept what God has made you to be, unwillingness to accept the design, the, the, the divine design of human function and flourishing that God has given. No, abortion is not a standalone issue. It falls right in line with every other kind of degradation of God's design for human living. The created order and also the created purpose. You may know, even if you didn't grow up with a catechism, you may know the answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And of course, that wasn't just a, something made up by a bunch of theologians. It comes from the scripture. It's the message of God concerning the purpose of mankind. We won't turn to all these passages, but for instance, Psalm 86, verse number 9. Psalm 86, 9 says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. God has made the nations, which are full of people. God has made people to glorify him. He has made them with that purpose. He has made you with that purpose. Colossians chapter number 1, verses 15 through 17, read this way. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, all things were created through him, and listen, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. He's the sustainer of creation, but he's also the beneficiary of the pleasure of creation. That is, all things were created for him, for his pleasure, and for his glory. In the book of Revelation, chapter number 4, verse 11, we read, Worthy are you. This is the cry of the 24 elders who fall down before the Lord on the throne. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All of creation is by the will of God. It's for the glory of God. It's for the pleasure of God. And this would be a problem if God were a a merciless, vindictive, and evil ruler. For instance, if God was a tyrant and heinous and wicked, then it would be a problem that all things were created for him and his glory. 
But that's not the case. That's not the case. Exodus 34, verse number 6. The Lord passed before Moses. This is at the giving of the Ten Commandments. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 145, verse number 9, tells us this. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord's goodness and tender mercies are over all of his works. That is, all of his creation experiences and is ruled under the goodness of the Lord. When we are faced with being created with a divine order and a divine purpose, we are also faced with the fact that that comes from a good and faithful and merciful God. And when we are faced then with being created with with order and purpose by this God, the importance and triumph of self dwindles. It's then a less important question to ask, what do I feel like or what fulfills me the most? And it becomes increasingly more important to ask, what does God require? Or maybe more applicably, how has God designed this world to work? And what is my place within it? We are agents in God's created order. Like Adam and Eve, we're given the task to to tend and keep the garden, to name the animals, to have dominion over them. We're agents in God's created order, and we must function within it. And as agents of it and within it, we are agents for God's created purpose, which is to glorify him. And as we glorify him, there's a blessedness. You remember the psalm we read at the beginning of the service? Blessed are those who find refuge in him. That it is as soon as we run away from God's created order and purpose, and really to run away from the Lord himself in that, that we run away from the only blessedness that is available. God is glorified not just in what he created. In other words, let's make it real specific. God is not just glorified in that he created the baby in the womb. He's also glorified in why he created it. In other words, he created that baby with the purpose to glorify him. And how his creation is to exist. In other words, he's created us all not for nothing, but for a purpose. And he's given us a divine order under which, and only under which, we flourish. We could say a lot more. 
But in conclusion, I would say this. The assumptions that are made to, to say that full-term, late-term, partial birth abortion, abortion for any reason, abortion enshrined and, and legalized, those all stem from denials to function in the way that God has created. It's often a, thrown as a dart against believers that when it comes to politics, we're, we can be one-issue voters, and maybe we are. Um, it's often not that simple. But in the case of something like this, uh, this is a hill to stand firmly upon. Abortion, I would say, it is a hill to die on. But I hope you also heard the point come through that the unrighteousness that leads to most cases of abortion is also a hill to die on. It in no way excuses the rampant nature of it. But may we be consumed with praying and seeking that God would be honored in all of life. This is why our message must cry out for the lives of the unborn. Without pause, without clarification, without, uh, without giving any exceptions. But also, we must cry out with the gospel. Because we want the babies to live and we want their parents to know the love and mercy of Christ. For the mercy that he provides and the righteousness that comes only from following him comes through that gospel. So we cry out against the measure that makes personal reproductive autonomy the law of the land. But we also cry out for people to return to the Lord, to be redeemed and be changed, as to, so to make this kind of desire unthinkable. So in one and maybe the only political statement I'll ever make from this pulpit, I would say vote no. Vote no concerning Proposal 5 and Article 22. We would say oppose these kind of measures. Absolutely. On the basis of God's word and his created order, oppose them. And I would also say, don't stop there. Preach the gospel. Love your neighbor. Fend for the lives of the unborn. Support that single mother. If you're at a season of life where you can, take in that unwanted child. Support a couple who is seeking to foster or adopt. Pray for righteousness to prevail. And pray for changed hearts. Because even if, even if Prop 5, Article 22 were to fail, the work is not done. Because God is after the hearts of people, not just our politics. Lord, I pray that somehow among all the, the talking that a message has come through, and more importantly, that your word has come through. 
we are at a pivotal moment moment in society. We are at an unheard of moment in society, but Lord, you are not surprised and you are on your throne and we seek to honor you. And among all this, Lord, maybe somebody here would have heard that they were created with divine order and divine purpose. And Lord, would you draw that person to yourself that they might find that fullness in Jesus Christ and the fact that he died to save us, to redeem us. Lord, would you be glorified in what we do and how we represent you and how we interact with our neighbors, those who disagree with us. May we speak the truth in love, hard truth seasoned with mercy and grace, just as you've brought it to us so richly in your word. And we pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.